Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Josh Venice. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Quentin, thanks for having me on. Good morning. You're you're very welcome, Josh. So uh, I want to kind of kickstart our conversation, Josh, by asking you um, a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests just to kind of keep the continuity of uh, each podcast conversation. So the first question I would like to um, ask and what I would like to know is how do you start your day, Josh? Is there any specific routine or ritual you like to stick to on most mornings and on most days? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, you know, in a normal season, um, I'm generally training quite a bit of hours. So generally, first thing in the morning, I'm getting a workout in um, some kind of session, whether it's a swim, bike or run. Um, so most mornings, that's pretty prevalent. Um, this year, I'm battling a little bit of an injury. So it's been a little bit less frequent of a morning workout because I've been doing more midday and evening sessions. But that's generally um, a first a first time a first thing in the day must for me is getting a morning session in when things are, you know, in a normal routine. Um, after that, you know, the general things I, you know, I have to have my coffee in the morning. That's definitely a must. Um, I kind of consider myself a big coffee aficionado. Um, I like to make several different types of coffee and I enjoy sharing coffee um, with myself or with others. Sometimes I'll meet some friends in the morning for a coffee. Uh, local coffee shops or, or wherever. So um, that's generally um, a must have for the start of any day. Um, and then after that, I just kind of get rolling in my day. Um, you know, obviously I do uh, endurance sports coaching. So a lot of my first um, bits in the morning involve getting into uh, training peaks and understanding what my athletes have been doing and understanding uh, kind of where they're at in their week understanding uh, what kind of roadblocks might be ahead of them and kind of helping navigate that. Uh, do a lot of communication. So I've got, you know, not only text messaging coming back and forth with my athletes, but also we use the Training Peaks platform to communicate back and forth within uh, kind of the, the training plan and the training cycle. So that's um, a good start to my day as well. Um, and then I just kind of build from there. Um, and that's kind of how things go. Okay. Perfect. Love it, Josh. Okay. Um, for the next question, it's what's your favorite book or podcast? Now, if somebody asked that question to me, Josh, it would be hard for me, especially with the book, just to give one. So please, if there's uh, a favorite book that you have, kind of like maybe an all time or a book that you like to gift often, or if there's several books, of course, uh, feel free to share. And if you do listen to podcasts, do you have one that's kind of like your, your go-to? Yeah, so I will be honest, reading is not something that I do on a frequent basis. It's more of a, I need to be motivated to do it um, or have an interesting uh, review that someone has said, hey, this book is really good. You should read it. So um, I will say, though, I've read a few uh, in the last year. Uh, one that really stood out to me was Dave Grohl, The Storyteller. Um, I'm a big Foo Fighters fan, and I really got um, a lot of joy going through that uh, journey that he kind of dis describes within you know, kind of walking through his life and then getting into the music music world that he's in today, um, his trials and tribulations and struggles and all the different things he's seen along the way. And he's really uh, quite a talented musician, um, basically learning everything from self-teaching himself and really playing music by ear versus really reading music is, is really a difference. So um, I really liked the Dave Grohl story, uh, the storyteller. Um 
I like to listen to a lot of different podcasts, uh, mainly predominantly endurance sports focused or motivationally focused people. Um, I listen to the Rich Roll podcast pretty frequently. Um, Ben Greenfield, um, my coach has a podcast, uh, The Crushing Iron. Uh, So Robbie Bruce uh, and and Mike Tarali do that. Um, And then I listen to a couple of other coaches that do different podcasts. Um, Matt Dixon with Purple Patch, uh, just to name a few. Um, but yeah, I just, I'll sometimes get out and dabble too. Like someone will recommend a podcast and I'll jump on and listen to a few episodes and see if it sticks. Um, but more, mostly I listen to it to just be in the background or if I want to learn on a specific topic or subject, I'll, I'll tune into the podcast and see, see what I can get from it. Excellent. Uh, I've definitely listened to a lot of rich roll, uh, podcasts over the the years and he's uh he he's great at what he does i and he's got an amazing story himself so uh awesome stuff okay um what life lesson josh have you been taught or have you learned in the last year now if it was six months ago if it was a month ago if it was a couple years ago uh that's obviously not a problem i just kind of want to know a life lesson that you've been taught or learned within recent times yeah, I think for me, uh, this is a tough one, but a really good one. Um, you know, it's it's like you can never take for granted where you're at in your journey because one day you can be at the top and the next day you can kind of be at the back at the bottom. So I'll, I'll explain what that means. I, I've been in the sport um, triathlon world for eight seasons now and have progressively worked upward, you know, reaching new milestones, new goals, reach, racing you know, longer distances. And I had probably my best overall total season in 2022, Um, you know, PRs across the board in almost every event that I was doing um, and really a lot of good training that was going on. And then it was also the longest season I've ever strung together. So kind of pushing from, you know, the start of the season in January, like most athletes do, I raced all the way through Ironman Arizona, which was November 21st of last year. So almost 11 full months of full grind. Um, and that was, that was a lot. Um, I did it for a couple of reasons. I wanted to learn what it was like to go that long without kind of stopping my season and going into off season mode. But, you know, I was also probably in the best shape of my life last season. Um, so what I, what I say that is I was at the top kind of last year. Um, and now I've, I've been battling a foot injury that's really taken away some things that I enjoy, mostly running. So I've had to navigate that path, which has been very frustrating. And it's almost a very mental, it's a very mental um, catastrophe, really, because I don't know if, if you've run a lot, but but running is a definitely a different outlet than any other kind of fitness or workout that you can do. It's, it's a very calming and a very... Uh, time in your own head type of event where you can go out and just work through thoughts and, you know, or just really not think about anything. And when you take that outlet away, it's almost like you take a piece of you away that can really go out and process those things. So, you know, the experience that I had when I couldn't run very much for probably the first four months of this year, this calendar year, it's been, it's been tough. So um, I was supposed to race back in May um, I ended up pushing that event out and I'm racing at the end of July. 
But in a normal season, I'm usually racing by now. Like this is June 22nd or something. And I haven't raced a single race this year yet, which is very non-characteristic for me. So um, it's been very different. Um, you know, so you just, you can't take things for granted. And I've really learned um, patience, um, trying to find other ways to, you know, kind of cope and understand where I can get the same uh, joy without having to necessarily be, you know, the top echelon athlete that I've been um, over the years. And I, and I say that tongue in cheek, it's not like I'm a pro athlete, but in my own mind, I've been at the top of my game and now I'm not. And so it's kind of correlating. What do I do that still allows me to be uh, competitive and personally motivated to kind of get up and do things every day. So um, I've learned you can't force anything. The more you force it, the harder it's actually going to be. Um, so that's that's another thing I've learned. Um, what else? Yeah, that's really the biggest, I guess, current life lesson. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's. Uh, I want to go a little bit deeper uh, uh, with that because I think this is something that all of us, whether we're an athlete, a business owner, a parent, um, you know, uh, we, we, we all have um, an identity, right? Um, some of us maybe have multiple identities, but especially when you're a coach, uh, you're an athlete, like that is a very strong identity. And all of us, uh, you know, really uh, dig into our identities because it gives us comfort. It, it gives us acceptance. Um, it gives us a place to be in life. I, I get all that. So you kind of mentioned that you kind of had to try to figure out some other outlets or avenues, Josh, to kind of like, you know, keep your peace of mind or or just kind of put your energy. So through this time of, um, quote unquote, being on the sidelines, right, and not being able to compete, not being at your optimal athletic uh, peak performance, what are some things that you have adopted or implemented to kind of help you, uh, you know, work through this, uh, you know, difficult time of, again, being on the sidelines? Yeah, I think I've done a couple of different things, Quentin. Um, number one, I've invested way more energy in my coaching business and, and roster this year than I ever have in the past. So it's almost one of those things, if I can't play the game, I'm going to help others play it better type of thing. So I think that's been a big drive of some new energy that I've created for myself this season. Uh, I've, I've attended a lot more local races that I can go support the athletes that are racing. And, and yeah, I'm not towing the line, but I'm out there kind of helping them drive to their finish. And it's, it's nice to be part of their day as well. Um, and not always on the, <laughs> on the grind. So it's, it's, that's one way, um, you know, I've, I've, I have two daughters. So my youngest daughter plays, uh, softball, travel softball. So, um, I've been getting a little more involved with helping her on some, you know, one-on-one -on -one things with some lessons and things like that. Definitely. I'm not the one always giving the lesson, but you can imagine, you know, carting around someone more frequently than normal. It kind of, uh, takes up a little more time. And, and really I, uh, <laughs> I bought a second bike, honestly, if you want to know another piece of the of the puzzle. It was, uh, call it retail therapy. Uh, but I bought a road bike that, uh, gave me the ability to do some different style of riding that I don't always do with my TT bike. Um, and I'm getting into some different group events with that. So it's putting me in some different social circles. Um, so those, those are some of the things I'm doing. Um, 
I am back to running. It's just not nearly at the level I was doing. Um, and I will be racing. In fact, I'm racing this coming Saturday on a short little uh, local race. And I do have a 70.3 coming up in July. So one way or another, those are going to get done. They just won't be as pretty as before. So, um, but it, I mean, I think everyone finds a way to fill that time. It's just how long do you sulk in the moment and, and feel sorry for yourself that you can't do what you've been doing. And I'll admit I did that for a bit. It was definitely, um, woe is me and what am I going to do type of thing. And then it's, you know, I have control to kind of do whatever I choose. And so I kind of had to start making choices around what allows me to be happy again, what brings me joy mm -hmm. and what puts me in the circles of influence that I want to be in. And that's really what helped kind of move me past the sticking point of that um, and really start focusing on the things I could control versus the things that I couldn't control. Excellent. Okay. Um, maybe you've already mentioned it, uh, but you have a favorite quote, mantra, or word, Josh? Uh, yes. So I've got a few of these. Um, I'll, I'll say most of these come from the lens of a, of a coach or, or an athlete, um, but success favors the prepared is, is one of them that I use a lot. It's, it's not certainly one that I've token, but it's one that I've used. And, and what that really just means is <laughs> the more prepared you are, the more success will follow. And, and if you don't prepare for it, you're never going to be ready for it and be available to have it when it comes your way. Uh, so sometimes you have to do enough of the right things to have the opportunity to be successful um, versus, you know, if, if you're not prepared, if you're just kind of winging it without a plan or not really knowing the direction you're going, you still might get some success. You might have some spontaneous results, but if you want more predictable and or a more satisfying result, it's, it's, it's better to be prepared. And then um, kind of my coaching slogan or my coaching marketing slogan is kind of aligning passion with performance. So like that's my, my big mantra is really trying to help people that I work with as an athlete um, that I coach is I'm trying to help them align what they're bringing from their passion and turn that into some sort of performance for them. So whether that's, you know, a working mom that wants to do her first triathlon or, or you know, a, a 60 hour a week dad that's, you know, just out there grinding every day. It's, it's, I work with all types of athletes and, you know, just helping them transform what they are passionate about and taking that energy toward something good and, and helping them drive performance along their way. That that's really the, the big things that I, that I like to do. Love it, Josh. Okay. Let's uh, let's transition into your uh, backstory. So this is kind of uh, one of the favorite uh, aspects of the podcast is really getting into uh, the guests uh, upbringing their childhood so talk about, if you don't mind, Josh, where you actually grew up. Um, what was life like for you? Uh, you know, are you an only child? Do you have siblings? Did you play sports? Did you like school? Did you hate school? Um, just uh, walk us through your, your childhood up to about high school for us, please, if you don't mind. Yeah, so uh, I'll give you everything I can remember. It's been, you know, a hot minute. But <laughs> yeah, I grew up, my dad was actually in the Navy. Um, so he moved us around until I was about the age of five. Um, but we settled into a small town in Northwest Ohio um, back in 1987, which is aging me a bit here. But 
I was basically four or five years old and we, and I went through, you know, all of grade school in that location, um, grew up kind of in that small town, thousand people town where everyone knew everybody. And, you know, you were surrounded by four cornfields, probably similar to what you see where you're at, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of the small town life. You learn, you learn to kind of appreciate some of the little things and, um, Fortunately for me, I grew up with a father that uh, ran a construction business. And, you know, from the age of five, he was taking me with him to work and <laughs> putting me on job sites and helping me learn how to do things. And uh, I do have a younger brother. Um, he uh, is two, two and a half years younger than me. So, you know, we grew up typical family. Uh, my mom worked as well, uh, but she always worked second shift. So um, my dad was pretty much the normal caregiver in terms of the parent that was around the most for my brother and I, um, I grew up playing baseball originally as a kid. That was my very first sport, probably the sport I loved the most. Um, but then I grew into playing also football. Uh, those are, those are the two sports I played pretty much from five years old till, you know, I graduated high school. Um, I also did martial arts for a while, probably 12 years of that and competed uh, nationally in in martial arts and did uh, did achieve my second degree black belt there so you know i've got a few different competitive uh competitive uh rewards in my life that i've been able to achieve um i was never a standout athlete in terms of color or in terms of football or baseball i was good i was a team player um, and I always did the best I could, but I was never the the all league all star uh, per se. Um, but I think that's okay. I think you know every every kid that comes and steps on a field is never going to be guaranteed to have that talent, right? And you know when there's a lack of talent, you have to make up with it with heart and and hard work. And and that was something that I had to do. So I think it taught me some different things that you know really have shaped me to where I am today. Um, Going back to kind of my uh, my upbringing, though, like my dad really put me into like leadership style opportunities. Um, he really gave me that opportunity to uh, learn and grow. And the relationship that I have with my dad is very different um, just because growing up with him being uh, kind of my boss, per se, when I worked for him every summer and then having him as my father it was kind of like two different dichotomies of, of a personality. But yet they were the same person. So um, my dad was never really um, that lovey-dovey affectionate kind of guy, which I don't know many dads that are. I mean, I, I kind of am because I'm a father of two two daughters. But um, my dad was the typical kind of, you know, hard-edged guy where he, you know, he kind of gave you a lot of tough love, right? And it was a lot of life lessons. And I will say that that formed a lot of work ethic and a lot of mental approach that I carry today and so i thank him for that and um we were always pretty close my dad and, and then my brother and i were you know we were always at each other like most kids are when they're going through their childhood and you know there's always the the bickering and the fighting and all those things um but yeah my mom uh she was the soft one you know she was the one that always kind of was the nurturer um, but again, she, she worked second shift and she wasn't around as much. Um, so there was kind of that, uh, ebb and flow of, of that growing up as well. So both parents really supported me and my brother. So I will say that, you know, there was a, never a lack of support growing up. You know, my dad always told me, if you want to do something and you put your whole heart into it, he's going to support it. So, 
he never missed a game took me to every practice until I could drive myself. And there was never, ever a doubt that he was going to help, help me get to the, to the things I was trying to do. So, um, yeah. And going through school, you know, I was always, believe it or not, I started school when I was four years old. I have an October birthday. So I started school when I was four years old because in the place where I started in Chicago area, they let you start before you were five, if you could test in. So I tested in, then I come back to Ohio where my dad moved us mid year and they're like, Oh wow, this kid's already started school. And normally we don't let people start school that early. So I started school young. So I, you know, I was always the youngest kid in my class. Uh, and as I go through school, get into high school, things like that, I'm, you know, toward the top of my class in most cases, uh, very scholastically strong, uh, which is good. I'm not trying to like top my horn, but, um, I started going to college in my junior year of high school. So I pretty much, accumulated 33 credit hours of college credit before I graduated as a senior in high school. So my whole senior year, I went basically full time to BGSU, which is the university that I ended up getting my degree from and was basically only going back to my high school for sports and one class that I had to take. So, you know, my whole senior year of high school was basically operating as a, as a college kid, uh, which, at 17 years old is definitely different. Um, so it was, it was always, I've always kind of been ahead of the curve in terms of maturity. Um, just my age has never matched the people that have been around me. So, um, I've always been young to the party, I guess you can say. Um, but yeah, I guess that kind of takes us through the, the life journey that you were looking for there. Okay. So I want to ask you, uh, something that you kind of uh, mentioned. So in terms of your dad, which I think you're right, most uh, guys are a little bit more, uh, especially like your dad was in the military. That's that's going to give you a little bit of a different edge, I would say. But most guys are, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, of the, of the tough love type, like you mentioned, Josh. But you said something about, you know, you have a couple of daughters, so you're, you're not maybe, you know, uh, you're not in, in that same mold, maybe because of your daughters. But this is the question I want to ask you uh, because you, you mentioned the word like lovey dovey. Uh, but, you know, I, I think there is a great uh, value and power in like vulnerability and uh, you know, having that balance between the masculine and the feminine, even, even as a, as a male, right. That's my personal perspective and opinion. Um, so do you feel like, uh, maybe it is because you have two daughters and that maybe soften, softens the edges a little bit as a, as a man, but do you feel like maybe you took so, something away from your dad to where you're like, man, like, you know, I, I really love my dad. I appreciate him, but I don't necessarily want to show, uh, you know, my own kids, whether they're boys or girls or, you know, everybody in my life, that tough love. Is that something that you consciously was aware of or, or, or not? Yeah, I, I would say it was, uh, Quentin. I think for sure that, you know, obviously having daughters is much different than having a son. I've never had that, so I don't know. But uh, I definitely feel like uh, showing affection, showing care, and showing love is much different uh, for me as a father than maybe my dad experienced. And, you know, I think it's different times, too. I think, you know, as we evolve in society, I think um, parenting has really changed from the way it was when my dad was doing it versus the way I'm doing it now. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of different uh, societal changes that have happened. There's a lot of differences in 
technology and just the way that everyone's doing things today um, and just the things that kids have available to them. So yeah, to answer your question, I think I'm not like compensating, but I think it's, I'm just forming my own uh, way of, of being, being there for them. And I think there's definitely been intense moments where it's like, Oh, I just want to lay into these kids sometimes. And there's definitely hasn't been a lack of that, but you know, you have to do it in a different way. And it's, it's more about the delivery and, and really communicating is really what I've learned is how do I communicate more effectively with these kids so that, so that I'm not intense, so that I'm not, you know, trying to be argumentative and so that I'm not trying to create confrontations. Okay, cool. All right, Josh. So um, you mentioned uh, your senior in high school, you're, you're already in college. Uh, so when you uh, started uh, college, what did you uh, pursue in terms of your degree? When you were in high school, maybe it was your senior year in high school when you were already going to college, but um, when you were a teenager, did you have some thoughts of what you wanted to do or be, quote unquote, when you grew up? And then once you enrolled in college, what did you study? Did life take you in that direction or did life take you in a opposite or different direction? Just unpack that for us, Josh. Yeah. So if I would begin, uh, really, it was my dad told me, he said, go get a degree so that you don't have to do what I do every day. Right. So growing up building houses is a very physical job, very highly demanding. Um, and I had done that numerous years with him. So he's like, you don't want to do this the rest of your life. And so, you know, for me, I think as a senior in high school, um, and I don't have the exact moments of the decision, but I, I recall wanting to go into, uh, to be a math teacher. I wanted to be a math teacher and then I wanted to coach sports. I wanted to coach high school football and baseball, the, the sports that I liked to play. And I liked working with, you know, working with kids. I'd worked with some younger teams as I got older and I was kind of helping the local leagues with coaching and umpiring and things like that. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go be a math teacher at the high school level. Uh, so secondary math was the original path I was going to go down and then I can coach. Right. And that was kind of the original path that I, that I paved for myself. Um, so I had gone into my college full-time career at that point and was starting to go through that, those classes. And I'll never forget. I, I didn't fail, but I did very poorly in a math class as I was working up the ranks of the different math classes we were having to take. And I said, wow, this is a wake up call. I, if I can't get past this class, I'm supposed to be able to teach math. Like, and obviously in, in college there, there's certain, you know, flunk out classes. There's certain professors that are out there to try to, you know, weed out the people that aren't going to end up being there. So I think it definitely worked. It was a quick wake up call for me that made me pivot very quickly. And I said, wow, do I really want to be a math teacher when I can't get through these ma some of this math? So that was a pivotal change for me. And so I I kind of abandoned my original path, kind of like most college kids might, and went into business. I said, what can I do in the college of business that is exciting and can use the skills that I have and the things that I enjoy? So I start looking at these papers that are on the wall of the college of business. And it's like accounting and marketing and um all these different business jobs. And I see this uh, description called supply chain management. And so that was what I gravitated toward. It was, it was a degree that um, allowed me to kind of use my 
outgoing personality, kind of my competitive outlet to kind of drive different, um, different things in my career. And so I moved into the college of business, pursued supply chain management and kind of never looked back. So that was the career path I started on. Um, I spent 20 years in manufacturing, um, between corporate and plant level positions, um, and, just kind of working through, you know, up the chain, up the ladder, chasing the corporate dollar, you know, chasing promotions and title. And it was all great and fine for a while until it wasn't. And it just got exhausting and not as fulfilling as I thought it would be. And, and you know, it's definitely not for everybody. And, you know, for me, it was like, I need, I need to do something else. Right. And so that was, that was what kind of led me into coaching. I mean, there was a big life change I went through in 2016. Um, you know, I, I decided to, you know, I'm not trying to air it really deep here, but decided to, to break up my household and, and went through a divorce. And through that process, I found triathlon. And as I got into the sport, it just provided such a different perspective for me. And it gave me an outlet in so many different ways that allowed me to be a better person for me and for my kids and really show them an example of you know, their dad being a winner and their dad being someone that can go out and chase a dream. And as I started that path, um, you know, I started doing triathlon in 2016. As I got better and better and more immersed in the sport, I decided, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do coaching, you know. And so in 2019, that's kind of when I decided to start putting my hat in the ring to be a endurance sports coach. And now I'm in my fourth season. So it's, it's, you know, I kind of started at zero, you know, getting that first athlete or two was, was tough. And I still have two of those athletes today. So um, it's nice to know that, you know, some longevity is there, but um, building a business from the ground up is very, very hard. And I have always known that, but until you go through that process yourself, it's really hard to comprehend. Amen to that. Okay. Now, I want to go back to the uh, the corporate life. You said you were in the corporate world for about 20 years. So you obviously have a lot of different experiences. But the part that I want to touch on, Josh, is uh, where, you know, you said it was good until it wasn't. So uh, obviously, you know, we don't we don't need to get into your, your personal uh, business uh, in depth. But in terms of the corporate setting and you saying it was good until it wasn't, what was it that you just kind of like got tired of or you were just like, man, is it, was it something like, I, I know there's more in me, there's more to give, there's, there's got to be something different. Like walk us through that wrestling because I believe most of us humans at some point in our life go through that. Not everybody walks away from their career or their job. A lot of people stay there because it's easier, it's comfortable and, uh, you know, let's just stay complacent and that's how they live their life. That's their choice. But a lot of us, uh, refuse to continue when we start having that internal wrestling. Right. So walk us through that. What was it? What was it about the career? Was there an internal wrestling going on? Uh, touch on that because, uh, that's, that's interesting, uh, topics to touch on. Yeah. I think for me, Quentin, it's kind of been, um, circumstantial and, as I would work for different companies, I would always obviously lead with my best foot forward, try to do my best. And, you know, I was always a high contributor to any team I was on and I was a top performer, but then it became 
things outside of my control that started to frustrate me, like business performance, you know, customers coming and going, which would drive different business dynamics. It was um, stability and instability. It was um, having to deal with other people not pulling their weight. It's, it's you know, all the typical things that you get involved with um, in corporate America. Um, but I found myself in some different situations where um, I kind of took a risk from a career standpoint and kind of put myself in a position where I was trying to help turn around a plant or take a team that was in a very toxic place and try to help them emerge from that. And along the way, I was swallowed up as, as part of the downturn or the churn of losing a, losing a job. So I've, I'd lost a job a couple different times. Really, it started through uh, more through COVID, but um, I think a lot of us had different things to overcome during COVID, but I'd, I'd lost a job, actually two jobs between COVID and now. Um, and it was just, it was difficult. And I got tired of trying to chase the what I felt was the wrong thing. And, you know, I was always able to like get that next job and, and be able to be employed, but it was not as satisfying anymore. And I found myself shifting my priority from, hey, I don't need to go chase the big job, the big title anymore. I, I'm more happy just being who I am as an athlete. And then I was coaching at the time too. So I'm kind of saddling two things. Um, and I still saddle two things today. Don't get me wrong, but um, coaching is my predominant thing. Um, but what I mean to say is it's just, it just gets very hard when one part of your life in the endurance sports world is so rewarding and fulfilling. And then your corporate day and your corporate world is just not. <laughs> so, um you know, I'm a very social person too. So I do, I do miss the social interaction of going to a nine to five job. Um, but what I don't miss is the flexibility I have and the ability to do things on my terms and really help support who I am as, as a person and the things that I'm aligned to in life with what I'm trying to do with, with endurance sports. And, and that's really what fulfills me more today than what I've ever felt. And I think that shift in mindset uh, was more from relying on someone else and someone sitting above me in the corporate ladder and relying on me and me alone. And so when I can control my own destiny, I know that the work I put in is a direct reflection of the results I'm going to get um, versus in the corporate world. And then again, I'm not bad mouthing it, but you might work your tail off and still may not get to where you want to go. I mean, there could be roadblocks that are never in your control. Um, I've never had that golden parachute per se, and I've never had that person that's really just said, Hey, we're going to make you a VP someday. It's like, I mean, I've never had that. So maybe that's my own fault. I, I definitely don't shy away from the accountability there, but, um, I've just never found that to be the ultimate end. And so for me, the path I'm on now is, is much more rewarding. It's definitely more fulfilling and, I'm touching people's lives and helping them make a difference in their world. And to me, that's a lot more rewarding than I think I ever felt when I was in corporate America yeah. as much. Hmm. Now you said earlier, Josh, that you were, when you were in high school, you were actually helping some like uh, younger sports teams and things like that. And you, when you went to college, you, you wanted to get into obviously teaching math, but then coaching. So it sounds like, you know, you've had some sort of interest since you were a teenager in helping others 
in pursuing whatever they wanted to pursue. Obviously, it was sports back then. It's it's kind of athletic endeavors now. Um, can you touch on why uh, maybe when you were a teenager, that young, you you had this interest in helping younger people, helping people with their pursuits? Yeah, I think for me, Quentin, it's more, uh, I think I somehow, I never knew it. I, I can see it now, but I just have this gift of helping others get the best out of themselves. And I think, you know, when you coach anything, right, whether that's endurance sports or a team of, of people, um, you know, I've coached both of my daughter's softball teams when they were younger. Um, when I was in high school, I was coaching like more of like the teenies, like the people that were, I was a senior in high school coaching, you know, fourth and fifth grade basketball or baseball or whatever. And it's just helping mold these kids that are just there to learn from you and really just know that you're influencing them in a different way. And, and they're looking to you to be an expert. And again, I wasn't the standout all-star and I wasn't the best at anything, but I knew how to coach it. And so for me, you don't have to be the, if, if there's anything to learn from this, you don't have to be the best at something to be able to help people do it. And to me, it was more, I could help people connect the dots and, and I knew the right thing to do. I was very educated and more experienced in those kinds of things. So it's, I turned the experience I had into helping others learn how to do the same thing. Okay, cool, man. Okay, Josh. So uh, the next question is triathlon. Why in the world would you start doing triathlon? I mean, that it doesn't get much more hardcore than that. You could have just done like, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, you know, maybe work your way up to a marathon, but you, you, you chose triathlon. So First of all, when did you first kind of like come across triathlon? Um, and then for those of us who uh, that are listening that maybe aren't familiar with, you know, Ironman, like what the distances are, because I know there's like the Ironman triathlons and there's like, you know, triathlon, there's sprint triathlon. So why triathlon for you initially? When did you first kind of come across it? Why did you decide to pursue it um, as a, as a uh, you know, profession or as a passion? And then uh, explain the differences of the different types of triathlon so we can kind of uh, have a better grasp of that, please. Yeah, sure. So we got all day for this, right? Because this might take a while. I'm, yeah, no, I'm no, kidding. I, I'm in no rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you really want to know, initially, I got into the sport of triathlon in a very weird way. But I tell this story because it's really kind of weird. I was going to get my teeth cleaned at my dentist's office and the lady that's checking me out, the receptionist has this really huge gaudy watch on it. And it's a Garmin 920 XT. It's one of those really old school, big square watches. And I see it and I say, what kind of watch is that? And what does it do? And so I asked that question and she responds, oh, it's a triathlon watch. And, I, and it tracks, you know, the things that I do for, you know, a triathlon, like swim, bike, run, whatever. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what do I got to do to be able to do that? She goes, well, you got to find a place to swim, learn how to swim. And, you know, if you don't have a bike, go buy a bike and buy some running shoes. And so I said, okay. And I kind of left that conversation. I remember it. It was in, it was in like January of 2016. I remember it pretty vividly. And I, I'm one of those guys that once I get a little, uh, 
perk of interest. It kind of like I go all in on something to try to figure it out. So I start researching and figuring out, okay, where can I find a bike? How do I get one? I ended up buying a used road bike for my very first bike. And I think I bought it for at or under a thousand dollars, which a lot of people have to do getting into the sport. Um, and I, and I went and got a membership at my local, uh, rec center here where at the university where I could swim and I get in the pool and I just start swimming. Um, so that was the original spark to get me into triathlon. And once I learned of all the different competitive um, options within the sport, I was like, wow, this is for me. Where have I been? Um, so to rewind from that, you know, I've gone, I, I went through a very transformational uh, phys- physical part of my life, right? Where I was very heavy at one point and I went from lo- being very heavy to losing a bunch of weight and getting very fit again. And that was kind of through this process and journey getting into 2016 as well. Um, but, but entering 2016, I, I had only ran one or two 5Ks. And I'm serious. I, had, I was not a runner. Uh, I couldn't swim a lap in the pool. And I didn't own a bike. I, I had nothing leading into this that said, hey, you can go do this. I just jumped in and did it. And I tell that story because a lot of people think you have to have all this background and all this equipment and all these things to be able to do what we do. All you have to have is the heart to commit to want to do it. And that's, to me, what I try to tell athletes is, hey, if if there's a will, there's a way. You know, it's you find a way to figure it out. Um, You'll find resources that will help you. Um, So that's kind of how I got into the sport. I couldn't swim a lap. I couldn't run a mile. I couldn't run more than a 5K, I should say. And I didn't own a bike. So I got all of that within the first three or four months of 2016. And I said, okay. I'm going to sign up for my first event. I signed up for a local sprint triathlon at mommy Bay state park. Um, did my very first event, thought I was going to die just like anybody that does their first event like that. It's like the mindset of going into a race is like, if you're not a swimmer, if you didn't grow up being a swimmer, you're like, now I have to swim in open water. (laughs) And so swimming with a bunch of people around you and then trying to just navigate how to sight and see, I was just like, please hope I don't die today. You know, I just want to survive my very first race ever. So um, I survive it. I get around, I I swim, I go on the bike and I'm on my road bike and I'm pedaling working hard. And I see these people flying by me, flying by me, flying by me. And I'm like, and and I'm saying this to to kind of note it for a future thing I'm going to say, but I'm like, wow, these people are fast. Right. And so I'm still doing my own thing. I get off, I do my run, I finish the race. And I'm like, wow, the the joy that I felt from crossing a finish line was like nothing else. It was, it's, it's different than winning a football game in high school. It's different than winning a baseball game or, you know, throwing out a runner at home. It's just, it's a completely different experience that I hadn't, that I hadn't had from any sport that I'd ever done in my life. And that was when I got hooked. Um, I signed up for a second event that summer, did another sprint triathlon and kind of called that a season. And granted, I'm training every day now. I'm doing, you know, three or four swims a week, three or four runs a week and three or four bikes a week. So if you add all that up, it's more than seven things in a week. So you're kind of doing more than one thing in certain days. Um, but then I'm like, wow, now how do I start doing this at a bigger level? So in 2017, I decided to do the exact same two events again to try to see if I would be better, which which I did. 
And then I added the Olympic distance. So I jump into my first Olympic distance race, um, which is, and I'll go into the distances after I share this um, so that people can know. But when I jumped into my first Olympic distance race in 2017, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to get passed by these people that are on faster bikes than me. If I'm going to do this sport, I'm going to get all in. So I went from having a road bike, I sold it and funded the first uh, triathlon bike, which is a TT bike set up for aero. You know, it's very strategically uh, built to be fast, right? So I bought this bike six days before my first Olympic race and I raced it, which I don't advise too many people to do that. Um, but I did it and, and I ran and I raced my first Olympic on a, on a faster bike and I was happy about it. Um, from there forward, I knew I was invested. Um, so kind of from the end of 2017 till today, I have been pretty much all in and I have been invested and I just never looked back. Um, so from 2017 going into 2018, um, I kind of set my season up to be even bigger. I kept going bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, so 2018, I did Olympics again and then did my very first 70.3 race, which was in Muncie, Indiana, um, July of 2019 or sorry, July of 2018. And I did have a coach for that. So I did hire a coach for the first time and kind of worked through that process, kind of understanding how to train better, how to train differently, um, being effective. So that taught me a lot. And I go do my very first 70.3 with my training partners and um, I wasn't expecting much. And <laughs> I ended up <laughs> surprising myself and doing very well. Not like I didn't win, win anything, but like I did better than my plan. Um, and kind of, I, I did a 519, I think at my very first 70.3, which for most guys, I mean, obviously there's always faster people, but for most guys doing their first 70.3, I always tell them kind of 530 is the mark. If you can beat 530, you're, you're in a pretty decent middle of the pack average. Um, so that's what I did. And then after that, I was like, wow, this is the distance I enjoy. And so I kind of set up every year subsequently from that to just keep going bigger, bigger, bigger. So in 2019, I did three 70.3s. 2020, the pandemic hit, so we didn't race. And then in 2021, I did three 70.3s, qualified for the world championship, did the world championship, and my first full Ironman. Um, so five races in 2021. And then last year was three 70.3s and another full. So I've done 11 70.3s and two full Ironmans to date. And um, I still want to keep going. So, you know, I've kind of got this big goal of, I guess, personally, I want to try to do 50 of them before I turn 50. Um, now this foot injury has definitely derailed this season, but I'm hoping to navigate that to be able to get back on pace to where I can start racing again a little more frequently probably won't be this year, but hopefully in next year and beyond. So, um, that is kind of my triathlon journey. Now to go back and kind of give you the details on each distance uh, that you asked about a sprint triathlon, um, is short. It's the shortest format. Um, most races can vary a little bit just based on the locality and how they, how they run the race. But most sprint distance races are a 750 meter swim which is converts to be roughly half a mile. 
Um, and then it's a, it's a 12 and a half mile bike roughly. Um, and then it's a 5k run. So, you know, for most people, that event is an hour 10 to an hour 30, you know, so it varies. Different people have different paces, but generally it's just over an hour event for most people under an hour and a half. And then from there, the Olympic distance is double that, right? So the Olympic distance is what you see every four years at the Olympics, like in Rio and Brazil and, you know, in Japan, 2021, I think when they had that one. Um, that distance is double of the sprint, right? So it's a 1500 meter swim, which is right under a mile. It's 0.93. And it's a 40 K bike, which is roughly 24 and a half miles. And then it's a 10 K run, which is 6.2, whatever it is. So that's the sprint and Olympic distance. So those are, those are kind of the two beginner level, not, not beginner. I don't want to say it that way, but two entry level distances that most people start with. And then from there, we get into long course racing, which is more 70.3 and Ironman. So Ironman is broken up between the 70.3 event and the 140.6 event. And the distances break down like this. So in a 70.3, you swim 1.2 miles, um, and then you bike 56 miles, and then you run a half marathon off the bike. So that's a cumulative of 70.3 miles. Now, every race course will be a little different sometimes the bike might be a half mile long or half mile short the run's usually never short um some chattanooga's got an extra mile in the bike course as does north carolina some courses are just long based on the way they have to run the route but in most general cases you're going to be at within a half mile of all those distances so that's a 70.3 um, that's, that's a, that's a pretty involved day. If you can imagine, because the race will generally start, um, you know, right at 7am or sometimes earlier, you know, and most times people are arriving at that event an hour and a half before that. And so if you can imagine going and doing a physical event for five to six hours from 7am till early afternoon, that's, that's an event. Um, that, and that starts to become a little more involved. Then you enter the 140.6, which is the full Ironman level. And this is where I tell people one plus one definitely does not equal two in this condition, right? You can't just say what I did in 70.3, I can just double that and do that for a 140.6. It's just not the case. One plus one does not equal two in this equation. And distance wise, yes, it's the same, but there's just so much more involved with being that physically engaged for that much longer of a time period that there's so many other variables that come into the, to the playing field. So, um, a full Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, um, 112 mile bike and a full marathon off the bike, which is 26.2 miles, a cumulative of 140.6. Um, people that have accomplished that distance is people I would say is in the upper echelon of, the sport. And it doesn't matter what the time is that you finish at that level. Just to say that you've finished one of those races is, is saying something. And even at the 70.3 distance is, is pretty accomplishing. Um, I never want to diminish anyone's goals because everyone comes with a different perspective and a different outcome that they're looking for. And even people that can do the sprints and Olympics, kudos to them because it still takes some commitment to do this whole sport from 
beginner level all the way to 140.6. So it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Hmm. Yeah, that is a lot. Okay, Josh, I want to know, um, what is it for you personally that uh, you, you so enjoy about um, being a triathlete? What kind of like keeps you, uh, I don't like to use the word motivated, but I'll use it. Uh, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you wanting more? What uh, initially kind of pulled you in and again, has kept you as uh, you know, a, a triathlete? What, what is that thing for you? Yeah. So I guess Quentin, for me, it's as I started in the sport, I obviously work up the path of getting better, feeling better, getting faster. You know, everybody has a personal PR and as you start to put those on the board and then start beating them. And as you get faster and better and more experienced, those become a bigger reward. That's kind of what drives me. Um, I'm also driven by, you know, setting a good example. I mean, I, I think I alluded to it earlier. I, I want my kids to see their dad accomplishing things that most people don't. And, and that to me is probably one of the biggest drivers is, is just that. And you know, I could care less what people think about my times or what I do or how I do. I, I care more about staying in it for the long run. A lot of people get into the sport and then they get out of it. Um, I'm committed to it for the long haul. You know, so for me, that's another example I'm trying to create is this is more of a lifestyle for me. This, you know, I, I, I'll bash my dad a, a tad bit here. My dad used to call this a hobby for me. He said, why do you keep investing all this time and money into this hobby? And I would always correct him. I said, dad, this is not a hobby for me. This is, this is, I'm forming a lifestyle. And, and I can say it honestly today that I've fully embraced it. This is not a hobby for me. This is definitely a lifestyle. It's something that drives me day in and day out. I eat, sleep and breathe it. And it's not like I'm obsessively compulsive about it, but it's definitely when you're energized and passionate about something, it just becomes who you are. I think you alluded to it earlier. It becomes your DNA. And so people know me for this dynamic. And that's kind of what they see, um, which, which is good and bad in some cases. Um, I think you asked, um, what else did you ask? You asked where I wanted to go with it or. Uh, no, no. I just kind of asked what, what kind of drew you in, what keeps you going. Oh yes. Go, go ahead. I mean, you mentioned you want to get the 50 by the time you're 50. Um, is there any other goals or any other pursuits outside of, you know, have it having it be an uh, you know an example to your your daughters uh, being being a lifestyle in that fifty by fifty. Is there anything else that um, you know is kind of driving you forward as a triathlete, Josh? Yeah, for me, it's it's also experiences, right? I've used this sport to go out and see different locations in the in the U.S. I, I enjoy getting out and exploring at every location I go to, so. To me, it's it's the adventure side of this as well that gives me some uh, spontaneity and some variety. And then I also, one thing I will say, and, and this is something I went, meant to say earlier, this sport is so connected with 99.9% .9 of everybody in this sport is positive. There's not a negative person I have yet to meet in this sport, which means in a world, let's just say, let's go back to corporate America, you have people that aren't happy to be at work. Versus I come to an endurance sports world and everybody's happy to be there. Everybody is energetic. Everyone's rowing the same direction. Everyone's there to accomplish the same task. And yeah, we paid a race, but at the same time, 
we're emotionally involved, we're physically involved, and it's our passion in life. And so if there's one thing that keeps me going too, it's all the people I've met. I've met thousands of people in the eight years I've been in this sport. And I could probably say it's less than five people. And I, I, I can't even really say, pick out who they are. Not a single person has been negative along my journey. I mean, we all have our moments, but everyone's positive. Everyone wants to help you. Everyone wants to be resourceful. You know, I, I flew to a race one year. It was at the World Championships and I lost my bike. My bike went to a different airport. I called a local pro at the location that the bike that the race was at, and he was willing to help me find a bike to help me ride that race without even really asking a question. Like he just said, yeah, I'll help you find a bike. And he did. And now my bike came back. But the, the moral of the story here is anybody is willing to step in and help at any drop of a hat to make you successful. And that's, you know, that's what I like about it. Everyone is, is very positive, resourceful and energy, energy driven and, and it's really hard to have a negative thought when you're in the sport. Now, when you're grinding, yeah, it gets tough, right? There's a lot of mental – we could have another whole podcast about mental toughness within the sport. Um, but, yeah, I think for me, the positive energy is just, is always there. And so – and, again, it's the social aspect, right? I don't do it to go out and buddy-buddy with everybody, but the people that I meet along the way – um, is very fun. It's very fun. And I have a lot of good friendships from that. So it's, that's been very rewarding. It's a very good byproduct of being involved in the sport. Um, in terms of where I want to go, you know, again, I want to do the 50 and 50. I don't know. That's, that's kind of a loose goal. You know, it's not something I have to do. Um, but really it's, I want to grow big enough to where I'm comfortable to making this sport coaching, at least my full-time, my full-time thing. And it's not quite there yet. It's, it's pretty close. Um, I would say it's 70% where I want it to be. And, um, you know, it's starting to make me make some tough choices <laughs> between my day job and this. Um, but it's, um, it's very rewarding and I, I like working with the athletes I'm working with. Um, you know, I've gone through peaks and valleys of losing and gaining athletes and, and we always do, but now it's starting to become where people are coming to me versus me hunting them down. And, what I've found is, and this is probably something else I want to just share is I try to leave a very valuable presence when I interact with people to where I've made an impact on them and they, and they're going to remember that, right? I give them value before they ask for it. And whether that's free advice or helping them through a situation, if I can provide value unsolicited, and then you remember that, it's going to come back around. And I think that's what I'm starting to see now is a lot of seeds that I have planted over the past three or four years have really started to come full circle to me. And, and now it's, it's the growing season. It's the time where I'm able to actually reap those rewards. So it's been great. Excellent. Okay. Um, a couple uh, nuts and bolts questions here, Josh, and we'll start wrapping up. I wanted to, I want to touch on uh, nutrition here, uh, you know, uh, a little bit. So, you know, I know Rich Roll, he's plant-based. I don't know what your nutrition is, if you're plant-based or not, but would you talk about uh, nutrition? Uh, first of all, your nutrition. Do you have like uh, nutritional uh, advice or do you uh, kind of like, what do you kind of like try to guide your uh, clients in, in terms of their nutrition? Or do you have like a nutritional philosophy? Um, touch on that. And then... Uh, 
because I know plant-based is big within endurance sports, I'm assuming it's probably pretty big within triathletes. Um, is there also a place for people that aren't plant-based? Like let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head there, Quentin. I think there's a wide spectrum across the board. Certainly I um, respect those that are plant-based. I can't, I have chosen not to do it as a full-time thing. I've, I've dabbled. There's days I'll go purely plant-based and there's days I'll eat, I'll eat meat and protein. Um, but I feel like it's a balance and I have a lot of friends and, and fellow athletes that are hundred percent vegetarian or vegan or plant-based and they're very successful. Um, I know a very good friend of mine, Todd Crandall, he's hundred percent vegan and he's very passionate about it and um, has his very good perspectives on life with that. And I respect him. I, I love what he does with it. And it's very rewarding for him. For me, it's just, it's something that's not over the top. I don't want to, I could do it if I really committed to it. I just don't feel like I need to. There's different scientific journals and all kinds of different scientific research around the differences between plant-based and not plant-based. So I won't debate that today. Um, really, it's it comes down to three words when I tell my athletes. It's fuel for performance, right? Fuel for performance. If you remember those three words, you will be successful. So it's – I do give nutritional advice. I also have a very good nutritionist that is a partner of mine within my coaching. Her name is Kylie Van Horn. She runs Fly Nutrition out of um, Colorado. I have used her as a consultant slash partner within every athlete I've worked with that has needed more specific uh, nutritional advice. So plug for Kylie here. Um, she's worked with me. She's helped me do some things, setting up macros, understanding what I need to take in and when. Um, but really, it just depends on – it's just like anything in coaching, right? Nutrition is just as individualized as anything else. Every person is different. Every body is different. And what they're able to – process in their body is always going to be different. So, you know, a lot of people uh, in the sport, I would say eat pretty clean in general terms, right? I don't really eat fried food. Um, I eat a lot of good, clean uh, foods that come in, fruits, veggies, meats. Um, but I also focus on the carbs and make sure I have those at the right time, right? I think knowing where to get your energy stores from to convert energy into output is really a key factor. Um, and again, that's different for everybody. Um, I know within racing, you know, we're trying to get in 90 to 110 carbs per hour um, so that we're able to function and keep firing within our systems. Um, so that's kind of a general thing that we look for. And that's and that's more at the longer distance racing. Shorter distances, you really can't do that much of a fueling strategy because you're not on the course long enough. Um, but going back to the answer to your question, um, I do, I do eat a very clean diet and I do prescribe to, to a healthy approach to that. I don't really eat a lot of cakes and sweets and baked goods. Now I will indulge when it's time, but, um, I don't drink pop or soda and you know, I, everything's fairly clean. Um, I do go in and out with alcohol. I, I don't like, I'm not a daily drinker, but I will do more of a social interaction with that. But I generally actually will shy away from alcohol when I'm hardcore in a season, just because it's, it's more of a mental thing for me. Um, so yeah, that, that gets challenging at times, but, um, yeah, I think generally speaking, just eating clean, eating, you know, not 
not processed foods, you know, things that are more at the source and just being smart. Um, you know, I always tell athletes, you should try to fuel before every session, you know, and make sure you're hydrating. Um, I have a lot of good partners. I'm lucky to have, uh, scratch labs. They're probably my biggest, um, longest term partner in terms of sponsors. Um, uh, I've been working with them for six or seven years of my eight now. So, I mean, I got with them pretty early. They, they provide hundred percent of my hydration and it's, that's everything I use is their stuff. So I've been very happy with their stuff. Um, yeah. And I've got some other partners along the way that I've, that I've done things with. Um, but again, getting back to nutrition, that that's a, that's a very hard um, arena, right? And I'm not a specialized nutritionist, so it's hard for me to sit here and give out nutrition advice, but I will say the things that I've learned from Kylie and she'll come in and do some like um, talks for the group sometimes with, or we've done some one-on-one Instagram lives where we recorded some interactions, but she's very, very good at what she does. And as good as I like to be with my training plans, she's that much better with the nutrition side of it. So again, I, I'm not going to try to claim to be an expert here on handing out nutrition advice, but hopefully I shared enough to, to kind of give you a flavor of it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad uh, you're a fellow meat eater, Josh, because uh, uh, I personally believe uh, that, you know, there's just certain things with uh, certain meats that you you can't get uh, if you're plant-based. Uh, you can if you're going to supplement, but it, it's, it's a lot harder. So um, yeah. if you eat meat, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. So, um, okay. One of the final questions I want to uh, get to here, Josh, um, in your estimation from your, all of your personal experiences as a coach, being coached, observing coaches, what makes a great coach in your perspective and opinion? Yeah. Wow. This is a good question. And honestly, there's probably a lot of different answers here. For me, the, the biggest thing that I try to pride myself on in, in terms of what I offer as a coach is I try to listen and adapt to the athlete, right? And that's the biggest thing you can do. Um, and that's really my, when I've had a coach and I, I still have one, um, a different one now, but the coach that I have, he listens, he understands, and he knows how I function. And so as a coach, you have to learn your athlete and that becomes a process, right? It's, it's almost like forming a relationship. You have to learn what makes them tick, what their personality is like, um, how their mental approach is every day and, and what's going to push them to the next level. So again, to answer your question, you have to be a good listener and you have to be adaptive and those are probably the top two things I try to say um, set me apart or, or when people look for a coach, that's what they should be looking for. Someone that's going to listen to them and understand where they're coming from because everyone's different. Everyone's got a different set of dynamics, including, you know, life and stress and work and kids and 500 other things that they do. And to try to get them to focus on do, doing 10 hours a week of, of training that becomes a challenge in and of itself. So um, I always tell people I'm not the coach for everybody, but if, if I'm going to work with you, we're going to be very collaborative. And that's another thing that I think is important in looking for a coach is finding a coach that's collaborative and anybody can write a training plan and just throw it out to you and say, Hey, go do this. But to be able to 
take it to the next level and explain, educate, and help them connect the dots, that's the next level that kind of sets people apart. And you have to be involved with your athlete. You have to communicate. You have to give them feedback. You have to know what they're experiencing at each point in the, not only the week, but in the training cycle to kind of help them predict where they need to go and and what they're going to experience and try to help them ride the lows and, and enjoy the highs because it's, it's all of the above. And, you know, I've had athletes that will get the very nervous panic during a race week. And I have to really talk them off the ledge and remind them that they've done a lot of good training and help them gain the confidence. And that's probably another good point is I help athletes that I work with understand how to connect what they're doing into confidence in racing, right? Because a lot of people are self-doubters and or self-sabotagers mentally. So they, they're never thinking that they're good enough, right? And so it's, hey, look at these things you've done. Let's just go do it again. And let's try to convert all these positive things into a positive outcome. And generally, I've found that that's been very helpful. Um, if you were to solicit any of my athletes today, they would all say that I'm a very involved coach. I'm very collaborative with them. I communicate, I educate, and I answer their questions. And that's really, I try to be available, right? And I think a lot of good coaches are going to do that. And um, I've had, I've heard of some stories where coaches won't even communicate once a week to an athlete. And it's like, if you're in a situation where that works for you, then great. But most people want a little more touch point than once a week hearing from their coach, especially as they're navigating a very difficult situation or path that they're going down to try to be prepared for a race or a season or whatever they're encountering going forward. So that's, again, probably the biggest things I would say people should look for is a coach that's going to match their level of what they're looking for in communication and, and, and feedback. Excellent. Okay. Go to running shoes. Uh, do you, do you personally have any like, uh, go to running shoes in terms of like, you know, uh, like a certain brand or, you know, certain style. And then, uh, with like the athletes you work with, or maybe some of your, um, you know, uh, uh, competitors or something, is there like a brand or style that's kind of like the go-to. So touch on that because I'm not a triathlete. I probably never will be. Um, and I'm, I'm interested because shoes, whatever sport you play, whether it's football, basketball, if you're just a runner, you know, just in the gym, everybody's got to have their shoes, right? So what are your shoes? What are some of the go-to shoes as a triathlete, Josh? Yeah. So I, this has been an evolving topic for me because, um, I started out in Hoka's. Those were kind of like my go-to running shoe. And those are a very good long distance endurance based running shoe. And Hoka's have been good to me for a lot of years. And then I switched into, some different running shoes in the last couple of years, I've started running in Saucony's. Um, and I will say, um, I train in multiple different shoes. I never write, run in the same shoe back to back days. So I always try to tell people you need to have more than one pair of shoe that you're running in. Um, I will say this with the big technology boost in shoes, especially for running, 
the carbon plated shoes are definitely a high, not a high advantage, but they're definitely an advantage with the energy return you get from them. So I race in carbon shoes. I've tried, I've used the Nike Alpha Flies. I've used the ASIC Metaspeed Skies. And I've run in the Hoka Rocket shoes, which are carbon. And what else? I've ran in in Saucony Endorphin Pros. So, you know, I've ran in probably four or five different brands. Um, I would say that I am not necessarily brand specific anymore. Um, I'm probably more function over fashion. So generally, if a shoe is working for me, I'm going to buy it again a couple more times. And then if I see a new one come out or if I want to try something a little different, I'll, I'll you know, kind of pivot a little bit on that. But generally speaking, I've stuck within the Hoka and the Saucony family for the most part from a training shoe. Um, everyone's foot's different. So I always tell people, go to your local running store, let them look at your foot, your gait a little bit and kind of understand what shoe is going to match for you best because you're going to put a lot of time in those. Um, and definitely... If you want to race at a high performing level, you're going to be wearing carbon plated shoes on race day. And so I generally will tell people if you're going to race a carbon shoe, you know, put a few runs into them and then put them aside. Don't don't run in them again until race day and break them out only for races. So, you know, those are very expensive shoes. So carbon plated shoes are anywhere from 200 to 275 dollars a pair. So and the and the and they don't last nearly as long as a trainer shoe. So you might get hundred to 200 miles out of a carbon plated shoe versus a lot of people get three to 400 miles out of a trainer shoe. So if you can imagine a higher price point and half the distance on that shoe becomes a little more of an expensive proposition. So that's all I have on shoes. I do have a local partner, uh, second soul that, that does treat me pretty well. So I send all my athletes there locally and I, that's where I buy hundred percent of my shoes. Um, but then just any local run shop near, anyone geographically. I think there's a lot of like fleet feats and places like that. I, you know, I don't send people to Foot Locker or Dick's per se, but <laughs> wherever you can get a good running, running store around you go to go to them. Cause they're going to be a little more expert driven. Hmm. What's been the most difficult uh, part of starting your own business and transitioning at some point you'll be a full-time coach. What's been the most difficult part of this transition or process from uh, starting ground up your business, Josh? Yeah, I would say the first two years, um, you're, you kind of feel like a used car salesman. You're like trying to sell yourself to anybody that'll listen. And, you know, I wasn't like annoying about it, but I was very seeking. I was trying to find different avenues of how to find people. You know, I used a lot of social media outlets to try to help that path. Um, I, I've d- done some very targeted branding and marketing and social media posting just to really ask for people to give me a chance. Right. And, you know, I can generally say if I can get into a conversation with someone, um, I think initially I would say my success rate was maybe one out of three that I would close. Right. Which is still not bad, but I'm, I'm I mean, now I'm to the point where I'm probably, two out of three, I'll close, you know, and, and, and even some cases, three out of three. So my success rate now with um, kind of new, new inquiries to conversion of athlete is very different today than it was when I started. And I think it was just experience and confidence. And it's the same with anything, right? As you become more experienced, as the message you're 
sending out becomes a little more, not necessarily believable, but it's, it's more credible. I would say people are going to see that and they're going to understand, wow, this guy knows what he's doing. And, oh, I see all these athlete reviews that have come in from people that he's worked with. And this is the things that they say about him. And again, it's going back to that creating value for people before they need it. That really has helped me. Um, I would say locally and nationally, um, because as I get into conversations with people, they may not be an athlete today for me that I'm going to work with, but I might work with them in two years from now. And I've had a lot of those people that I'm working with currently right now that I've talked to two or three years ago that weren't ready to be coached yet. And there's a big difference because uh, I will say coaching is not for everybody. It's an investment. And um, I tell athletes this too, if I'm not a fit for you, don't hire me as your coach. I mean, this is who I am. This is how it works. This is how I work with my athletes. If this doesn't match what you want to do, no obligation, right? So it's it's a very different selling process than I think a traditional business because it's a very niche market. I can't just say out of my geographic area of influence, I've got, I don't have a defined amount of people that are looking for a coach. So I my market is very broad and very big. And I almost have to create this uh, remote reality of I can work with you no matter where you're at, because that's kind of how it works. But I have, I never know where the next athlete's going to come from geographically. So it's networking, it's, you know, being in front of different social groups on Facebook or within the Ironman events that I go to. Uh, it's being involved in the community. Um, I sponsor the local tri club, so that helps a little bit. Um, I show up at show up at the events when I can, and so that helps. And I get into conversations, and then quite frankly, the last year and a half, so really from 2022 till now, I've had a lot of just athlete referrals, people that have worked with me that have said, "Hey, you need to work with this guy." So it's now becoming evolved around. I'm not necessarily out hunting for everybody that I'm coaching. I've kind of got people funneling through the pipeline a little bit, which is nice. Um, and people that follow me on Instagram or people that have interacted with me in the past have come back around and said, Hey, let's, let's work together. So that's been nice. I've also positioned with a couple of coaches that I've networked with or mentored with in the past that I get some of their overflow athletes. So like if they get full, and they don't want to take on anybody else, then I'll take one here or one there from them, which that's been a nice little bit of a fill. It's, it's gotten me a couple athletes out of that endeavor, you know, and I just pay them a small residual on that. And then, you know, they get kind of that referral fee from that. So that is nice to have. So, you know, I generally will say 90% of my athletes are from my own efforts. And then the other couple that I have are, you know, from the overflow that I get from a, a couple other coaches. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, wrap up question here, kind of, uh, to, to close this out here, Josh, as you look back, uh, you know, uh, over your life, um, if you could just maybe, uh, speak, uh, something to your younger self, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, what, what would you, what would you speak to your younger self? What would you like to say to your younger self? Wow. That's probably tough. Uh, Quentin, I think, the, the easiest thing I would say is don't fear the unknowns. Uh, that's probably the thing that comes to my mind because I'm a very calculated person and I like to be in control of almost everything to my demise at some point. But 
don't fear the unknown because I think when you embrace the unknown and you go into it with the lens of, wow, I'm just going to make this work and I'm going to jump out on a leap of faith. When you start aligning activity toward that path, it's going to come to light. And then people will never start or begin something if they're fearful. And I think that the more you step out on faith and the more you get out of your comfort zone and kind of do something that's not normal, then you learn and grow. And, and as you learn and grow, it may not be fast. It may be slower than you want, but it, as long as you're taking a step forward every day, that's really all that matters. Beautiful way to end it there, Josh. Love it, man. Okay. Um, so first of all, Josh, uh, before we wrap things up here, I want to say thank you so very much for uh, coming on the podcast and sharing your story and sharing your insights. Uh, awesome conversation. Very thorough. I really appreciate it. Before I do an outro and, and we get you out of here today, um, why don't you uh, share with us any final thoughts, any final words that you might have, anything that maybe you're like, man, I, I kind of want to talk about there. I want to share this before um, we, we close out today. Uh, I want you to share that. Um, website, uh, sponsors, uh, partners, Instagram, wherever you would like to direct people to uh, connect with you uh, online, social media, also make sure you uh, give us that information. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Once you're done, I'll do a quick outro and then uh, we'll let you go. So platform is yours, Josh. Yeah, Quentin, thanks again for having me today. I, I, I really didn't know <laughs> where this conversation would go, but I'm glad it, it kind of meandered the way through. So um, yeah, for me, I, I think the one thing I forgot to say is I'm starting to be motivated by a couple of bigger epic events. I'm actually going to consider doing some different endurance events beyond just Ironman in the future. Um, I met some, I met a friend in Arizona that uh, turned me on to doing rim to rim to rim. So I'm interested in getting that on the radar for next year. It's not something I can do this year with my running uh, status, but that is something I want to do. And then I've also dreamed up this big epic uh, bike ride, which is I want to bike across the entire upper peninsula of Michigan from Marinette, Wisconsin, all the way to the Mackinac Bridge, which I which ideally uh, ends up being 200 miles, which is a double century uh, bike ride. So I'm trying to drum up some interest. I've got a couple of local athletes that we might do that next year. So there is some exciting uh, things that are driving some energy beyond just in, uh, doing Ironman racing. Um, so that's that's first thing. Um, yes, I am on social media. My, my easiest, probably the most, uh, frequent outlet for me to, to get in touch or to be in front of people is on Instagram. It's at Joshua Venice. So it's my full name. And I think as you link that in the bio of the podcast, they'll be able to find it. Um, I do have a website. It's www.venicecoaching.com. So if you want to look that up, that'll also give you some information. And that's pretty much it from an from a business standpoint and yeah, as far as sponsors, um, I, I, I kind of alluded to them within the, the podcast here. Um, Scratch labs has been with me from the beginning. Um, I'm really gracious and fortunate to have them. Um, I've recently had the feed sponsor me as a uh, sponsored athlete. So I do get a lot of sports supplements from the feed. Um, Kate's real food bars. If you have never tried them, those are very good as well. Um, so that's a new um, kind of granola style energy bar that is made from 100% uh, 
very clean and whole food, uh, gluten-free type product. So they're a new and upcoming, and you can actually get those on Delta Airlines. They actually serve those as their snacks. So um, Kate's Real Food Bars. Um, locally, I have a very good bike shop that supports me, CycleWorks. Um, so John Hogue and the family at CycleWorks takes care of me very well, as well as Matt Folk at uh, Toledo Second Soul, which is all of my running needs. So I think that's probably suffice for sponsors and yeah thanks again for having me quentin it's been great to uh kind of get on and share a little bit about my journey and i appreciate it and hopefully the audience finds it engaging cool awesome you're you're very welcome josh and thank you again okay all of you who are tuning in to another episode of curious and candid i just want to say thank you so very much i appreciate all of you i value all of you and uh, if you guys would like to connect uh with myself through uh, social media, you can uh, find me on Instagram, Curious and Canon Podcast. If uh, you think you'd be a great guest, or if you have a friend or an acquaintance you think would be a great guest or guest on the podcast, you can uh, just uh, reach out to me through uh, email, and that is Curious and Canon Podcast at gmail.com. One huge favor I'd ask of all of you before uh, you guys. Uh, before we wrap up this conversation with Josh today, please subscribe to Curious in Canada on iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. And then finally, if you guys are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you can visit my website, awakentrainingandnutrition.com. Again, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid. We'll catch you guys uh, next time. All right. See you guys later.